Welcome to the Mac Emerge Podcast. My name is Teresa Chen, and with me I have Kevin Dong, Brendan Trotter, and Joanna Dida, and we'll be your podcast team. Our goal is to connect all the McMaster-affiliated emergency physicians so we all get to know each other a little better. We have so much great talent and expertise in this region. We want to highlight it into one regional podcast. Each podcast features one invited guest to speak about their expertise or interests. Additionally, we will feature external speakers who have delivered regional rounds at one of our teaching sites. And don't forget about the residents. We'll be featuring stories about our residents and what they've been up to as well. All right, are you ready? Let's get started with this month's episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another segment hosted by myself, Teresa Chan. I'm here with one of our newer faculty members in the Department of Family Medicine, actually. So I'm here with Dr. Farhan Parvez. Farhan, can you say hi? Hey, everyone. All right. So Farhan comes to us after a bit of a circuitous route, but is someone who has really taken on the mantle of doing some really cool and innovative research. So I thought I'd bring him in to have a conversation about his journey so far, I guess, as an early career researcher. So Farhan, would you like to introduce yourself a little bit to everyone? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on, T. Chen. This is great. I'm excited to be here. My name's Farhan Pervais. I'm a uh, Assistant Clinical Professor at McMaster, just started here, probably been almost a year now, and I work at HHS as an emergency physician. I'm sure we'll get into details of all the different research and things that I do, but most of my focus has been on global health. I do a lot of work on using ultrasound to diagnose pneumonia in low-resource areas. I also have a tech startup that focuses a lot on molecular diagnostics and data analytics. And yeah, that's kind of my academic background in a nutshell. I can not sure how much detail I want to be. Go- you want me going into in each thing right now. I'll let you guide me here. <laughs> All right, no worries. Um, and so, yeah, you have a strong interest in ultrasound. And can you take me back to the moment why that became the thing that you were most interested in? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it kind of fell into my lap. So I finished once I finished my residency. I always knew I wanted to be a you know a clinician scientist or kind of be more focused, have an academic focus in my career. So when I finished my residency, I had spoken with my supervisor, Dr. Redwood Campbell at the time, and we talked about how, you know, to get good at research, you got to learn how to do it. And I decided to go get my master's of public health at Johns Hopkins. And while I was at Johns Hopkins, my focus, I'd always been interested in global health. So my focus was always global health and finding projects to work on in that setting. And while I was there, I ended up meeting with my current, my previous supervisor and, you know, collaborator now, Dr. Will Checkley, who does a lot of work in pneumonia research around the world. And he's the one who actually introduced me to the concept of using ultrasound to diagnose pneumonia in kids. It was, this is what, like six years ago almost? So back then, I mean, it was it, it was ongoing, but it wasn't very popular. No one had really heard about it. It wasn't fully validated. The studies hadn't been done. And so it kind of, it's one of those things where it kind of fell into my lap and it really fit into what I was interested in. It was global health. I've, you know, was kind of getting interested in, in point-of-care ultrasound at that time. It was fairly new for me. All I knew how to do was AAA scans, which I had learned one night as a resident. So I you know, wasn't really all that great with ultrasound back then. And so when it kind of fell into my lap, I had a chance to kind of to go to Bangladesh and do some research with it. And that's what really piqued my interest, seeing the applications of it. And that's what really got me into it. Okay. So that kind of gets you into the research. And and. Obviously, you've had to pivot just like every other researcher in the world, probably with COVID, because it sounds like global health research is probably something that's been fairly difficult when you can't even travel. So talk to me a little bit about what it's been like to kind of go through all of that. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. It's been super difficult to do global health research when you can't travel. 
I think my what's what was nice for me is I was already planning on transitioning to do more work locally in Canada and in Hamilton and kind of you know bring all this to, all the research that we had done. So during my postdoc, all of my research was global health based. Right, we had one study that was three different sites in Bangladesh, which was a PCV, it was a pneumonia vaccine trial that we had an ultrasound component as part of, and then we had another large study that I helped start before I finished my postdoc which was in India, Rwanda, Guatemala, Peru. And both of these studies, we generate a lot of data on the validity of lung ultrasound, especially compared to chest x-ray. However, there isn't a lot of outcome data when it comes to ultrasounds, and especially point of care like POCUS in kids or adults, um, and seeing kind of how does it actually impact their overall health and you know patient outcomes, quality of life, anything like that, by using this technology. A lot of that data doesn't exist. And so my goal had originally been to try and generate some of that evidence here in Canada. And so it kind of, I was already leaning towards that. And then when COVID happened, it kind of pushed me further in that direction because we couldn't do any research internationally. So any of the studies that I was involved with that were, any of the global health studies I was involved with, I became more peripherally involved with just because there was no, no ability to travel to any of these sites. And so I kind of took the dive. I was already planning on and transitioning into more of a local thing. And so when COVID happened, it kind of pushed me further in that direction. And so that's when I decided to start, you know, focusing on generating evidence on patient outcomes when applying lung ultrasound as a means of diagnosing pneumonia. Okay, interesting. And so do you think that this is something that you'll kind of always be into this ultrasound stuff? Or do you think that you'd want to expand, change, pivot? I mean, I think ultrasound will probably always play a part of the research that I do. I think ideally, I would want to see what new applications you can have with ultrasound. For example, I've been talking to some colleagues in Australia about doing transcranial ultrasounds for large vessel occlusion. It's something that's been done, and there is some evidence around it. And there's a, there's a lot of interest in low resource areas, especially for medical transport, where they have patients in very low resource areas that have stroke-like symptoms, and they want to move them. And they have to decide, do we need to go to a place that has CTA versus just CT? And depending on whether or not you, you know, you're high risk for a large vessel occlusion, it depends on what site they take you to. So it's just a new application of an already ongoing technology. So I think that's one thing I'm really interested in is kind of what are the new applications for POCUS and learning from colleagues around the world, what people are using it for, you know, is there, could it be used for things like TB or other, you know, infectious diseases to try and get early at diagnosis or even, you know, severity of the illness. And then just diagnostics in low resource areas in general is something I've been interested in just bringing access to better care in low resource areas. So focus has been a great one, but I'm always open to new technologies. And it's something that I'm always searching for. I'm always meeting with people and trying to learn about what new technologies are coming out that help improve not just healthcare. I mean, I guess if I had to focus, it would be diagnostics, but just generally, how do we improve healthcare in low resource areas? So I think that's kind of the, the bigger picture of what I'm interested in. Pocus just, you know, is, is, has always been, you know, since I've gotten into it, I find it so fascinating that I think I'm always going to want to do some POCUS stuff. But beyond that, just improving care and improving access to diagnose, diagnostics in low resource areas is something I'm really interested in. Oh, that sounds really fascinating. So I like the idea of how you're kind of carving out your niche to be a little bit beyond just ultrasound, but to speak about how it's about bringing equity to really the hands of providers that are in these remote areas. Um, I can imagine you linking up with telehealth kind of um, applications or other kind of remote diagnostics and things like that. So that that sounds really cool. And I think it's always nice to have an eye for the future. We need people that are willing to take the leap and try something new, right? 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it's really cool. I was just in Germany a couple of weeks ago for a conference and they had, and you know, there's tons of companies with new technologies and they had this one like robotic arm where you can like use the ultrasound and say, you know, a more developed country and this arm is sitting in a less developed area, low resource area, and you can kind of, you know, conduct the ultrasound remotely. So there's a lot of really cool things that people are always coming up with. And it's always fun trying to discover these things and meet with people who are coming up with these cool new technologies and kind of come up with applications for them and, you know, make them more accessible and, and easier to use essentially. Very cool. All right. So let's pivot a little bit in our conversation even. Talk to me a little bit about research and what it's like to be a researcher or identify as one in emergency medicine. I think, I think it's great. I think, so first of all, I've been, I've been very fortunate that McMaster has a great group of people that, you know, are interested in research. I think it's constantly growing. There's a lot of new new faculty at, at Mac amongst the eMERGE docs that are very interested in research. And that's been really great for me because for me, it's always, you know, having colleagues or people that are encouraging and interested and supportive really helps do that as a researcher. For me, research is one of the reasons I actually went into medicine. I've always wanted to add to knowledge, discover new things. And so I like the idea of being able to do that. In the emergency department, what I love is we do so many different things that there's so many different areas of research that are open. Anything from education to diagnostics and you know labs, as well as you know management. There's so many different avenues of research that you could do in emergency medicine, and it kind of ends up being the ideal place. And honestly, for me, it works out really well because of the shift work. I'm not going to lie; the shift work actually helps me do research just because. And you know this, T Chan. I kind of you know bolus all my shifts together, so I, I work a lot of days in a row. But then it gives me time to focus on research and my startup and other things. So I kind of love being a researcher in emergency medicine. And I honestly, when I kind of went through my journey of medicine, Emerge was really not on my radar until quite late in my training. And so when I fell in love with Emerge, I realized all the different areas of Emerge and how much research that can be done in so many different things. And that's one of the things I love about being a researcher in emergency medicine is that, you know, you don't get trapped in a, a specific niche. I mean, you can, if you want to, right, you can focus on an area but then you can also expand. And that's one of the things I really like about McMaster is there's so many of our colleagues working on so many cool different things that it really opens up all these different areas where you're like, oh, I didn't even know I was interested in this until you get a chance to experience it. And that's something with Emerge that really fits well for, for that research is that the idea is there's so many different things you can do. Yeah, that's big bias that I have too, because I do think that the flexibility that I'm afforded by doing research allows me to have that cognitive flexibility, but then I need that flexibility in my other kind of work in order to fit or fit it in. I think for a lot of other people, they might fit in mounting, mountain biking or baking or, um, you know, taking care of their small children. But for you and I, I guess it's research. Uh, and so that's, that's fun. I mean, you know, everybody's got their thing, right? Or, or I guess I'm also partly an administrator and a leader as well. So, you know, more like other people like Aline Pardon or Greg Rutledge, they do other things like that too. So, you know, there's, there needs to be all types. And so I think that Emerge is a great specialty for that because it gives us that chance to diversify what we do with our time when we're not in the eMERGE. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love, I love being able to focus on patient care very acutely for the eight to 10 hours that you're in there. And then once you get home, it's easy to kind of step out of that and start focusing on the other things and whether that's your family or, you know, hobbies that you have. And a lot of eMERGE docs do so many cool hobbies. Like when you start talking to some eMERGE docs and the stuff that they do outside of the hospital, you get to realize that there's just such like vibrant lives that people live outside of the hospital. 
And I think Emerge really allows us to do that, whether it's academic and research or whether it's, you know, families or hobbies or other things that you're interested in. I kind of love that ER gives us that ability. Yeah, that's great. Okay, so you've landed here at McMaster and dial back time a little bit. How do you get your footing? Um, what were some of the steps that you took to set up kind of your research part of things? I know you're not done yet, obviously, but for those who might come after you, this might be a good podcast for them to listen to in the future. So you can give your advice a couple of times. But what, what's it been like to get started? How, how have you gotten started with the work that you're doing? Absolutely. I think the first thing for first things for me was just getting a lot of information before I decided to come to McMaster's. I fin- when I finished my postdoc, I was trying to, I spent almost, you know, six, eight months exploring different hospitals and systems and universities to try and figure out what would, what would be the ideal landing place for me. And the nice thing with McMaster is I did all my training here. So it felt comfortable and it felt like home. You know, first thing I did was I chatted with a lot of different people, I, you know, Raj Vadera, who who runs Division of Emergency Medicine, as well as Michelle Wellsford. I think Michelle Wellsford was my actual initial point of contact to McMaster before I kind of started working here. And I spent a lot of time talking to them about the research that happens through the emergency department, the resources that are available, the help that's available. The big thing for me, and something that I'm learning, and you and I, T-Chan, we talk about this all the time, is just kind of having the right support available, right? Because it's not, you know, writing grants and and getting funded, it's it's an art as much as it is a science, right? There's there's little nuances to it that you really need to learn. And that was something that I identified as a postdoc. You know, it was easy to get funded when I was a postdoc because my supervisor is a very well-known researcher and he's had so many grants that if he puts his name on something, people know who he is. And he's, you know, he's he's got a ton of Gates Foundation funding and they just keep giving you money once they've given you, once you get once you kind of get into that in the door, they they kind of just keep keep funding your projects. And so it was easier to, you know, it went from, you know, being so easy to get funding as a postdoc to trying to figure it out on your own. And one of the big things I realized is you need help to do it. And so the first step I took was figuring out what help is available for me, what resources are there, how does the department help people who are kind of just starting. And so that was the first step I kind of took. And what I initially did when I first actually joined the university is I didn't actually focus on research at all. I got my clinical footing first, right? I I was kind of coming into a new academic department. It was new system, new everything. And so I kind of did two things. I initially focused on getting clinically comfortable working in the HHS ERs. And then I started just reaching out to people who could support me and help me with the research. And, you know, it's kind of, you know, you've been great for that. I think, you know, I, I'm always surprised with how much, how you're able to be so helpful with all the different things that you do. So, you know, something I'm always very thankful for, but it was really nice finding people like you and other people who are super supportive when it comes to research and getting that, you know, being able to get advice, being able to get help on, on writing grants. So that was, that's kind of what I started with was finding people, just mentors and, and, and peers who are interested in the same thing so that we can collaborate and have people who can help work on grants and, and help find grants that I can apply for and then get kind of my clinical footing. Once I became much more comfortable clinically, that's when I started focusing on applying for grants and working on getting that research focus. And one of the things, you know, and you helped me do this is figure out kind of what my global areas of interest are, right? I know the research I had already been doing, but one of the things I wanted to decide is what's the next step, right? What do I take what I've already learned and the research I've already been doing? Do I want to keep doing the exact same stuff or is there any changes that I want to make? And one of the big things I realized for me was um, I want to keep doing global health, but I also want to start seeing how I can apply things locally. You know, how can I do projects that are in Hamilton or Ontario or Canada and kind of focus what I've learned in my training and abroad and bring it back home. And so that was the next step is kind of come up with an idea of what kind of work I want to do, what kind of questions I want to get answered. 
And then alongside of that was just finding grants. Just literally for the last, I don't know how many months, I feel like every other week I'm submitting a grant. And that's literally just in my life is just lots and lots of grant applications. And it's a learning process, right? It's it's not easy to get funded as a new investigator. And so a lot of it is just getting feedback from grants and sitting down with people and you know taking that feedback and applying it to the next grant. And then the other part is just finding collaborators, finding people to work with. And so the nice thing at McMaster is there's been so many people who are interested in the things that I'm interested in. And it's been super helpful where you can find groups of people and then they kind of open the doors for you. So for example, you know, Tanya Solano at uh, McMaster Children's ER is a huge POCUS person and she's been doing it for years and she's got a huge network and, you know, just finding her and collaborating with her and kind of her opening up her network to me and, you know, finding new people and new places to do research and different sites. And it kind of starts snowballing from there. So now I'm kind of at this point now, I'm still, you know, working on getting some of those early investigator grants and then just learning how to set yourself up for success. And, you know, what are the different steps that you need to do, take to set yourself up for success? For example, learning the importance of pilot data, right? Just learning how important it is to have some data before you get grants and things like that. So all these little things is just learning on the fly, essentially. And that's one thing that McMaster has been really great with is just the Department of Family Medicine with Dean Engine and them have been super helpful in kind of helping figure out, okay, well, you know what, you know, she's been great. She really has helped me focus on, okay, well, if you're not successful in getting grants in this way, what are things you need to change? How do you, how do you reevaluate what's happening and what's the next approach? And she's been really good at that, where she kind of says, okay, well, you tried this. Now let's take a step and try that, or let's take a step back and focus on, you know, a smaller, a smaller piece, something like that. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like you've found mentors from different groups that connected you to people. So that's fantastic. So, so who's Dee? Because I've heard a name before and actually I know her, but the audience might not know her. So for those other people who are interested in research, maybe she's a really important person to know in the Department of Family Medicine, right? Absolutely. Dee Manjin. I think, I, I think her official title is like V. She's like, she's the director of research and I don't know what her official title is. I think it's VP research. But she runs the research institution for the Department of Family Medicine, and she is just an incredibly helpful human being. Being at her position, you can imagine how busy she is. I don't know how she finds the time to meet with me as frequently as she does and just kind of guide me, but she oversees their, their, the Department of Family Medicine's research department division. And so one of the things, I, I don't know the details of her specific research, but she's really good at guiding new investigators and just meeting with you. Because one of the things, first things I did, and I, it was actually from your recommendation, T-Chan, was I just set up a meeting with her to just be like, hey, D, I'm here. What do I do next? Like, these are the things that I'm interested in. How do I get to where I want to go? And she's been super helpful at doing that, where she connected me to the right resources within department. That's one of the great things about her is because she, she runs the research division for the family of, Department of Family Medicine, she was really good at connecting me with the right people, the right, you know, when I had an IRB application view, who are the right people to talk to about getting that through, who are the right people to talk to about grants, funding, teaching, all of that stuff. So she was really good at doing that. And then she's really good at kind of helping you break down, okay, well, this is the research I want to be doing. What are the steps I need to take to get there? So yeah, so long story short, she she's, I think the head of the, I don't know what the, her official title is, but she's in charge of the, all of the research. She runs the research department through the Department of Family Medicine. And she is just a super helpful person. And I would encourage anyone who's in family medicine, who's interested in doing research, just reach out to her. She's a busy person, but she's pretty quick at getting back to you and she'll find time to chat with you. And her, her advice has always been fantastic. Wow. It sounds like you're really well supported in the Department of Family Medicine. So that's great. 
And so let's talk a little bit about building up capacity around you. It sounds like you've been well supported. What do you think are the next phases of your career? Like, where do you see yourself next? Are you, are you taking on students? Are you taking on people to do other kind of work? Like, have you linked up with staffers, like research assistants? Um, or are you kind of doing this on your own still kind of Mandalorian style? <laughs> uh, as much as I love the Mandalorian, it is too hard to do research Mandalorian style. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, you, you got to find your research family, essentially, right? You got to find the people who can support you because it's, there's, there's so many different things that, that go into getting a good question answered and getting a good project done. So um, I think for me, like you said, the first step was finding my mentors and peers, people I can rely on to just ask questions, get questions answered, connect me to the right people. Um, I've always been really interested in teaching. So what, where I am right now is I've kind of been connecting with students. And so I found a, you know, a few really great medical students that are really interested in POCUS and they've been helping me out with some projects. Um, I recently just started, uh, and you actually helped me help connect me for this too. It's, it's funny how you're, you're, you're kind of like a central nexus for a lot of, a lot of the things that I do. And I, I, I'm very grateful for that. I actually, I taught my first lecture through the, uh, masters of public health program in epidemiology, which was nice. And that's something I'm starting to kind of get into is kind of, is lecturing a little bit more through the Masters of Public Health program at McMaster. As a, as a global health person, as someone who has an MPH, I, I'm very keen on getting more involved in that program. So it's been nice to kind of take a, a few steps into that in that direction. I mean, there are very, and one of the things I learned about McMaster is everyone that I've met has just been so excited to work with you, right? Anyone you kind of send an email out to and say, hey, this is who I am and I want to work in, in this area. Everyone's just so keen on getting involved and finding ways for you to get involved. So when I first spoke with the MPH program, they're like, let us give you a course. And I was like, whoa, wait a minute. Let me, let's start with like guest lecturing in one course and then kind of work our way up there. And they've been really great at kind of helping me find my footing, right? So they've, they've been giving me as much or as little as I need to kind of move forward and learn how to do that. I've also now got a grad student that I've been supervising through the global health program. And that's kind of a new step as well. I've done that as a postdoc. So it's, a, it's different doing it as a primary supervisor. And it's something that I'm, I'm learning and growing. So at this stage right now, what I'm looking to do is kind of build that team, find the students, the researchers, the colleagues that I can put together so that as I you know apply for grants and get funded, I have a team together of people that I can involve in these grants who can work on these projects. And the key for me is I love working with students, right? I like finding students who are interested in the same things that I'm interested in, because that was one of when I was going through my family med residency, it was one of the early struggles was finding, you know, how do I find people who are doing the research that I want to do and are also able to get me involved in those projects and kind of get me doing those projects. And that's kind of what I want to do is find students who are interested in the same things as I am and then, you know, help them get involved. Or if they're not interested in the exact same stuff, but they want to do some global health work, I've, you know, I've developed a pretty decent network of people through my master's and um, you know, through my postdoc and everything else. So it's, it's not difficult for me to find supervisors or, or collaborators for them to work with on various global health projects. So that's kind of the next stage that I'm focusing on is finding students who are interested in, in whatever different cool global health things and then finding ways to help them kind of achieve that. Because I know that was one of the struggles for me when I was a resident is finding projects to work on, finding people to support me on that. And, you know, and that's kind of the thing that I want to help do is is find the students and help help them kind of find the projects that they're interested in and help kind of make it happen as as much as I can. That's really exciting. I would say that now that this podcast is out there, I will be fairly liberal in sending you all the uh, med students that want to do clinical research. 
<laughs> and I'll be like, listen to this podcast. This guy might be your guy. Yeah. Um, no, I'm just uh, you may never recover from that. Um, but, uh, but that being said, it sounds like you've, you're starting to set it yourself up. You're bringing on people and paying it forward. And I think that's really important. And, and I do think that a big part of how we all rise is that we help those that come after us get a leg up, become inspired, learn their own way. And I think that that's really important. And, and I think the reason why I've been so helpful to you is because lots of people have been helpful to me, right? So I don't think that that's a mystery at all. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. It's something I, I never would have gone to where I am if I didn't have good support around me, right? Whether it was getting into the right undergrad program, getting into med school residency, every step of the way, I was very fortunate to help people, have people help me kind of do it. And all what I was told as, as it was happening is just pay it forward you know, find other people who want to do the same thing. And it's kind of the philosophy that you live by, T-Chan. And I think it's a great philosophy to live by. All right. Well, it's been really fun to nerd out with you and talk about research. I think there's a lot of things that are hard about these first couple of years when you're establishing establishing yourself as a researcher. And so I'm hoping that others who come after you will, will do the same with them and just make sure that they get supported and get put good, um, Good, in good stead to be able to knock it out of the park. And I think so far we've done okay. I mean, it's too bad Kristen's kind of a little bit far away, but she's still, you know, involved with some of the work that we do. But others like Eric Hannell's been doing a lot of cool stuff at St. Joe's. Sean Mandu has been doing fantastic work. And I'll be honest with you, it just got announced recently. So I'm going to give him a shout out here. He's the next in the next round of the PSI Foundation Graham Farquharson Knowledge Translation Award winners. So kudos to Sean for locking down a really great career award that definitely helped me go further in the interim in the last three years. I just finished up my term in that award. And so I would say that it's it's pretty amazing to have that opportunity to do great work and have it funded and have your time protected. And so I wish Sean great amounts of luck and uh, know that he'll be someone that everyone is looking to to help as well, right? So, and hopefully over time, we'll all continue to foster you maybe next sometime or, you know, I know there are others that are in- interested in research both here and in regional campuses. So don't be a stranger, like reach out. And even if you're from another shop and you're like looking for mentorship, but it sounds like Farhan's always looking to develop a a cool collaborator at another site because I think that um, multi-center trials are definitely something that's really cool. So if you're inter- interested in global health, technology, ultrasound, and beyond, uh, he might be your guy. So welcome to the Macambridge family, and we're excited to have you here and looking forward to seeing what comes in your next chapter. Thank you. Thank you, Tijan. Thanks for having me. This has been great. And anyone out there who wants to chat, collaborate, anything, I'm always just looking to chat with cool people and find out, you know, what are you interested in and how can we help each other? And honestly, I learned so much from people. It's just, it's great learning about what people are thinking about and what ideas they have. And, and you know, someone's got cool ideas or things they want to do. I'm happy to figure out how to help them, uh, help them kind of get it done. Excellent. That's a great attitude that we love. And that's the kind of Mac Emerge spirit that we're looking for. So thank you so much for being part of us. All right. Until next time, I will bring you back another time. Don't worry. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Bye. Welcome to Residence Corner, where you will learn about some of the awesome work that our McMaster Emerge residents have been up to. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Mac Emerge podcast. As always, I'm Ben, one of the PGY2s in the Mac Emerge program. And this month, 
for Residence Corner. I'm really excited to have Dr. Jacqueline Reno, one of our PGY1s in our Emerge program, on to talk about her experience with sports psychology. Dr. Reno, who also goes by Jax, has a master's in sports psychology from Lund University in Sweden. In addition, Jax is a member of both the Canadian Sports Psychology Association and the American Association of Applied Sports Psychology, for which she is a mental performance consultant. Jax, welcome to Residence Corner. How are you doing? Good. Thank you, Ben. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm really excited about this. Now, first things first, can you tell us a little bit more about your path in sports psychology and how you ended up having all these incredible titles? Sure. Uh, Thanks so much for that. Um, So I was a competitive swimmer until I started university. Stopped swimming because I essentially had pretty significant burnout. And then I coached for four years after throughout undergrad, which I found incredibly rewarding. And then I knew I always wanted medicine. And so when I applied and didn't get in, I thought, well, I really wanted to do something that still meant I could work with athletes in the future for the time being and then maybe apply again. So I came across sports psychology and decided to apply and ended up getting accepted to a master's program in Sweden. And at the time, research in sports psychology was kind of booming in Scandinavia and very much still so is. That opportunity came about. I ended up in Sweden and then it all kind of went from there. And what was interesting about my master's program in Sweden was that it was actually housed within the Faculty of Medicine at Lund University. So right off the bat uh, in Scandinavia, they really appreciate the connection there between medicine and the mental performance tools. Yeah, very cool. And as someone who, at least I used to think I was a good athlete, I'm not anymore. I find sports psychology very fascinating. And now as we're both spending a lot more time doing medicine than doing any sort of sports, I'm wondering if you can make any connections or any tips for residents, medical students, staff physicians, those in healthcare, from what you've learned in sports psychology? Yeah, absolutely. So doing my degree in Sweden, I knew that to uh, get my licenses and certifications back in Canada, I had to do an internship in Canada. So I did my sports psychology internship with the University of Manitoba Bison's men's hockey and golf teams. And through that internship, my supervisor at the time got me in touch with Dr. Cal Botterell, who is very, very renowned in sports psychology, both in Canada and worldwide. And him and his team deliver the high-performance physician program for the FRCPC Emergency Medicine Program at U of M. That was really the first time I heavily reflected on you know, the mental performance tools and their place in clinical medicine. If you think about the definition of what an elite athlete is, and a very common one is, is that an elite athlete performs well under pressure consistently. That doesn't mean that they don't make mistakes. They very much do, but overall, overall they perform well. And if you think about it, emergency physicians especially are performing as elite athletes because they're performing well. They're doing it under pressure and they're consistently performing that really became an, an important thought for me, how relevant this all, all these mental performance tools can be in emergency medicine specifically. And so there's a, a few tools I can share that I found useful myself as a medical student, as well in PGY1, I've sort of incorporated into my beginning of residency. Yeah, that'd be amazing. It's uh, 
pretty incredible the parallels between high performance sports and what we do every single day in the emergency department in the trauma bay. So I look forward to hearing these connections. Yeah. So one of them, which is very, very common in clinical medicine is debriefing. It's something that is done quite often. I appreciate when staff do this with me at the end of the shift, uh, but debriefing is essentially asking yourself three questions. And that's one, what went well, two, what didn't go well, and three, what would you do differently next time? So I find this really useful to do at the end of every shift for sure, but sometimes at the end of a patient encounter. So sometimes multiple times throughout a shift, just thinking, okay, what do I think I did well? What do I think I maybe didn't do well? And what do I think I can do differently on the next patient encounter or the next shift? The second one would be mindfulness. So this was big for me in my transition to being a resident is even though you're on, on shift, you have these responsibilities, but then you also have these responsibilities that are floating around in your head of things you have to do when you get home. It can be a huge distraction to be on shift and to be thinking, okay, but when I'm done the shift, I've go home and I have to study this. I have to respond to this person or write back on that email or do this research commitment. And sometimes those commitments after the shift can kind of contaminate your experience on shift. So having a mindfulness moment at the beginning of a shift or day on the ward to kind of just say, okay, I'm I, in my head, I do this thing where I think about, okay, it is Monday, it is December, whatever the date is. And I really bring myself into that shift. And I use this tool that I started doing with kids many years ago, which is the, it's an imaginary box where you design this imaginary box where you have all your worries and thoughts and emails or whatever, and you put them all into this imaginary box in your head and then you close the box. And then that box stays closed while you're on your shift or doing whatever you need to do during the day. And then later on, when you get home, revisit that box, open it, and then deal with those things then. So I find that really helps me to be mindful. Another one that I started off doing with kids, but and I actually learned it from my previous supervisor, Dr. Adrian Leslie Tugut, but it's called Red Light, Green Light, and it's a tool to reset. So after anything upsetting, like a mistake, some negative feedback, or a negative patient outcome, anything really, to sort of have a moment where you stop and you so the red light is where you'd stop and say, okay, this was a, an upsetting emotion, feeling, or encounter for me, and just recognize that and say, okay, this was upsetting, and then acknowledge it and say, okay, well, that's upset me, or um, I'm going to take note of that, and then just have a moment where you let it go, and that's the giving yourself the green light. When I um, work with golfers, uh, I would tell them to do this in between each hole. If there was a hole that went really bad while you're walking to the next hole, have a reset moment where you recognize that, you know, the last hole didn't go well, but there's a hole in front of me. And then for hockey players to do this on the bench in between their shifts. Last tool of imagery and visualization. And this one is really, I mean, emergency medicine simulation is such a huge thing. And clinical medicine has for sure recognized the importance of simulation. And it's amazing all the progress that has been done and currently doing in simulation. Oftentimes where people miss the opportunity to do their own simulation is through using their own self-imagery without a whole simulation room and like equipment and tools. And even though we have access to these things, it's, you know, if you think about it, even when we do simulation sessions, it can be kind of scarce resource as well. The, the facilities have to be booked. There often has to be a facilitator there present. And we don't always have time to do simulation as we would like. So there's an opportunity to, you know, do your own simulation in your own, in your mind, essentially. And I'll preface this, I suppose, by saying that the sports community has historically done a fantastic job of 
harnessing the atmosphere of competition in, in advance of the real thing. And even so when no lives are on the line. So for imagery and visualization, you can do this for things like procedure tasks or ACLS. And basically how it's done is to use all your senses that, that you can imagine and, and in real time to think about going through the scenario. And there's these tasks that we're expected to be able to do and oftentimes not many opportunities. So here visual, visualization is a great opportunity to practice this more than we might have the, the actual opportunity to in, in real life. Certain athletes are inherently really good at this without having a mental performance consultant who tells them to. And one of those sports is bull riding. So I work with bull riders in Manitoba, in Grenthal, Manitoba. And one of the things I realized that was so incredible is they essentially, so bull riders don't have the liberty to practice with a real bull in their backyard. So they create these like makeshift simulation centers. And then they also only have eight seconds to perform well. So they do an absolutely phenomenal job of imagining the competition of this eight seconds before the real thing. That tool has taught me a lot and I found it incredibly useful. Yeah, those are all amazing things. And I think the interplay between sports psychology and medicine, like we're trying to do high performance things and arguably in medicine compared to sports where you practice for 95% of the time and you perform 5%, we're always performing. We have very little opportunity for practice. So I think you highlighted so many important points on how to make the most of our own practice like with that debriefing focusing on getting one percent better with every patient encounter or every resuscitation and if you add up those one percents you're gonna be a lot better down the line i also really like the idea of imagery and visualization like it'd be great if we could always have hyper-realistic airway models for practicing, but just the ability to sit down and think of that difficult airway or putting in a chest tube. If you put yourself in the moment, you'll be able to be better prepared for that next opportunity. So I think these are wonderful lessons that we really need to be emphasizing more in our training in emergency medicine to make the most of the rare opportunities we have when we need to do these rare procedures. Because the first time that you may be doing a rare procedure like a cricothyrotomy or a lateral canthotomy, that might be when you're alone as a staff physician. So we don't necessarily get the chance to learn how to you know, shoot a three-pointer thousands of times before we go for our first NBA game. No, we might be doing these procedures first time independently on our own. So it's, it's so important to make use of all of these opportunities that we have in residency and to reflect on those into practice. Absolutely. And I think one mistake people often make with visualization, and I've been guilty of it myself, is doing a really good job of visualizing, but then consistently visualizing it going perfect every time. And the reality of it is, is that will that will never happen. So it's important to visualize things going wrong and think about all the wide array of things that could go wrong and then it doesn't catch you off guard when it happens because that's sort of the the nature of what we do yeah that's amazing we have to absolutely troubleshoot troubleshoot a difficult airway troubleshoot a central line troubleshoot 
that difficult encounter with a patient. So that's also a good reminder that it's not just going through the steps A through Z. It's being like, oh, crap, that didn't work there. What do I do next? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Jax, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me here today. I sure learned a lot. I'm sure the listeners will as well. And I look forward to seeing you back on shift as you're now done the first half of PGY1. Yeah, it's crazy to think about. Thank you so much, Ben. This has been wonderful to be here. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Mac Emerge podcast. We hope that this brings you new information and helps you up your game so you can deliver better patient care to our region. Remember, we are always looking for new talent and expertise to feature in our podcast. So if you're interested, please feel free to contact us at our email at macemergepodcast at gmail.com. We're also looking to improve your experience, so please submit your feedback as well. Again, thanks for listening. Let's all stay connected. Mac Emerge out!